I'm looking forward to getting into this with you today. Let's begin this morning uh, in Zechariah chapter 6. Uh, we're going to go to verse 9, and we're going to pick up, and let me read this to us. And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Halim and Tobijah and Jediah and Hen the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And this is the word of the Lord. So uh, let me just give us quickly a recap. Uh, the last three weeks we've been exploring uh, this book of the prophet Zechariah. And thus far we have seen that Zechariah, who was also a priest, had been sent by God to encourage the returned exiles of Judah to remain faithful to the Lord and to continue the work of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. So the people of Judah had been exiled and carried away from Jerusalem for 70 years under the Babylonian and King Nebuchadnezzar, and they had destroyed the place. But now the people have returned, and they're starting the process of rebuilding. And in particular, the Lord has called them to rebuild the temple. In week one of this study, we saw that God's primary call was this, return to me, and I will return to you. Um, it was sort of a conditional statement. If you will return to me, I will return to you. And what was a part of this was this idea of looking to the past, looking at the sin of your forefathers, really examining it, examining it taking note of it, learning from it, and living differently as a result. Like, look to the past and don't be the kinds of men and women that they were, who were running after all, all these other false gods and being disobedient in a variety of ways. Don't be them. Be different. Return to me, and I will return to you. And following this, we then got a series of eight prophetic and highly metaphorical visions that formed uh, what is known as a chiastic structure. So uh, Ze uh, Zechariah has eight visions, and this chiastic structure, which is a common literary device in Hebrew literature, um, is a device in which uh, a verse or a passage is then mirrored in other verses or passages. So if I said something to you like, uh, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, that's a chiastic statement. Uh, the first part of that statement, the first shall be last, is then mirrored in a sense in the other part of the statement. Um, 
so for these eight visions, here's kind of the order. Vision number one corresponds with vision number eight. Vision number two corresponds with vision seven. Vision three corresponds with vision six. Vision four corresponds with vision five. So it's a little confusing, but the way that this all works out is that vision one and vision eight actually become together kind of the first vision and then vision four and five which are at the center of all of this actually are the last so that's again confusing don't feel like you have to hold on to that but that is kind of what's happening here and as I said last week it's a case for reading larger chunks of scripture at a time if you're accustomed to reading the Bible and only reading a few verses at a time you may miss out on some of sort of the bigger wealth of what's happening at large within a particular book Just to jog your memory a little bit, visions four and five, which are the last visions, were about the two primary leaders of Judah at this point, the two men who had been tasked by God with leading the people to rebuild the temple. And those men were Joshua, who is not the Joshua who led the Israelites into the promised land, right, in the time of Moses. This is a different Joshua. This Joshua is the high priest at this point in time. And then this other guy named Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, who is the heir to the throne of King David. Now remember, at this time, neither of these men are really able to fully function in those capacities. There is no temple for the high priest to serve in, and there is no throne for Zerubbabel. And even if there was a th- a, like a physical throne for him, he couldn't sit on it because the people are not free at this point. They've returned to the land, but they are still very much servants or subjects of the Persian Empire. Um, so that's, that's what we saw last week. And what we learned was three significant ways that this plays out. First of all, God tells Joshua, the high priest, that he will rule in the Lord's house. This was in uh, chapter 3. I'm not sure we have this up here or not. No, we don't. This is in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. In this vision, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing there. So God tells um, Zechariah in this vision, Joshua the high priest will rule in the house of the Lord, even though it's a pile of rocks at this point. Like, they've really only, like, done some foundational work on the temple at this point in time. He says that will happen. And then secondly, in this vision, God says that Zerubbabel, the Davidic heir, that he will complete the rebuilding of the temple. Um, That's in chapter 4, verse 9. It came to pass only four short years later, after Zechariah wrote these words, it actually happens, and we learn about that in the book of Ezra. And you can read about it in Ezra chapter 6. It's really sort of miraculous how it all comes to pass, how the, the financial resources are laid out, how the manpower comes to be, and the Persians actually play a significant role in making that happen. But then the third thing we learn, and the most significant thing we learn here, is um, that God tells us that or God tells us through Zechariah that someone is coming called the branch, the branch, and uh, the branch is coming, and Joshua the high priest is essentially a symbol foreshadowing the coming of this branch, and and this branch 
he says, is going to remove the dirty garments of the sin of Israel, and and he's going to put new garments on Joshua the high priest. And, And he says that this branch is capable of wiping out sin in a day. And so this would have rung a bell for the people at this point in time because this idea of a coming branch was not new at all. It had been already put out there by the prophet Zechariah many decades prior to this, in particular Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, uh, verses 5 and 6, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So unlike the kings that ultimately led the people into exile, a truly just and righteous king is coming, and that is this branch. And in his days, verse 6, Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, and this is the same by which he, and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Hold on to that idea. The Lord is our righteousness this morning. This righteous branch of David is also known by the people as the Messiah, the Messiah, the one who will save and restore the fortunes of Israel, the one who will remove the sin of the people. Um, And obviously, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know that this is fully realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the branch who comes and reigns and is perfect in justice and righteousness and is the one who is capable of wiping out sin in a day. So this is what we've seen thus far. Today, after these eight prophetic visions, we get yet another oracle from Zechariah, and this serves as sort of a summation vision, in a way, for the eight that have come before that formed that chiastic structure. And in this ninth vision, Zechariah is told to go to certain men who are named here um, who have returned from exile, and he's to take silver and gold from them, and he's to make a crown out of these two medals that's going to be put on the head of Joshua the high priest. But this all, we're told, this all is a symbol of the branch who will embody both the roles that Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the heir to the throne, embody. The text says that there will be both a priest and a king sitting on the throne. And this crown made of both silver and gold together, I think, is meant to serve as a reminder of this reality that is to come. So with those things in mind, turn with me over to the book of Genesis. Let's go to the book of Genesis, and I want to pull on a thread that I think comes to the surface here as we read in Zechariah. In the scheme of Israel and in the scheme of Hebrew worship, there are three significant positions or offices, you could say, that are found in the Old Testament. And the first is the office that Zechariah embodies, this office of prophet. Right? Uh, prophets are 
people who are sent to declare the word of the Lord to the people. The second office would be the office of priest. It's an office that is established by the law of God. And if you remember, there's one tribe in particular, the tribe of Levi or the Levitical tribe who are priests in the nation of Israel. Priests serve as the mediators between God and man. They perform the functions um, that God has set forth in the law related to the cleansing of sin, related to atonement, to cleansing the people. And then there are kings, kings who are tasked with steering the, the sort of sociopolitical kingdom itself, steering it ideally with justice and righteousness. And yet we know throughout most of the history of Israel and Judah, the kings did not steer with justice and righteousness. Um, but here's the thing, prophets, priests, and kings, nobody up to this point has embodied all three of those offices. Nobody has been a prophet, a priest, and a king all at one time. Um, the only person we find in the scripture who comes close to this is this uber-mysterious figure who predates the nation of Israel, and we find him in the pages of Genesis in the middle of the story of Abraham before he's even known as Abraham. He's just called Abram at this point. And if you remember his story, he's called by God to leave his home and to go to a land he's never been to before, right? This land of Canaan. But in Canaan, there's all this tribal fighting going on. And in chapter 14 of Genesis, we find that all of these different tribal kings are battling each other. And in the process, Abram's relative Lot is swept up and taken away. And so it then falls to Abram to put together a fighting force to go and rescue him. And so it becomes this rescue op operation, and he takes uh, something like 318 of his men, and he goes and he rescues everyone and everything, like miraculously, even though Abraham certainly was not a warrior, and who knows what these men that he had were like. Somehow he goes and defeats these armies, he rescues everybody and everything that has been taken away. And then this strange thing happens. Look at Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. After his return, this is Abram, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Isn't that interesting? In, in the middle of all of this, this priest who is also a king named Melchizedek appears seemingly out of nowhere. And what's interesting is he doesn't seem to be one of the tribal kings that has been fighting. There's a whole list of those kings at the beginning of chapter 14, and he's not included there. He just sort of comes out of nowhere. And do you notice anything interesting about him? What he does? He is this priest king who brings bread and wine to Abram and then... And then he sort of 
prophesies in a way as well. He gives thanks to God, and what he says is, Abram, you haven't done this. God has done this. God is the one who's given these armies into your hand. And then what does Abram do in response to this? Abram then gives this guy a tenth of the spoils of battle. He, he literally tithes to Melchizedek, this priest, king, prophet. That's what the word tithe means, to give a tenth. So it's very interesting, right? Like this is just sort of out of nowhere. It's only these few short verses. And this guy never pops up again in the story of Abraham. He just kind of vanishes. This king that seems so significant, significant enough that we're going to give him a tenth of everything. But then we don't see him again. Uh, Moses Lee, writing for the Gospel Coalition, says, Melchizedek commands a disproportionate amount of importance in redemptive history compared to the amount of space devoted to him in the scripture. His name literally means king of righteousness. And he rules over this place called Salem, the city of Salem. But what that word literally means in the Hebrew is shalom, meaning like cosmic, harmonious peace. So literally, the king of righteousness and the king of peace arrives with bread and wine. He breaks bread, he pours wine, and he gives God the glory for Abram's victory. It like, kind of gives me goosebumps to talk about this. And then we don't hear from him again until the Psalms. The psalmist picks up on this in Psalm 110. I think I have this up here. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the psalmist goes on to talk about how this king will execute justice among the nations. This king after the order of Melchizedek. And then, from there, we don't hear about him really again until we get into the New Testament. And then the writer of Hebrews picks up this thread. Hebrews 6, he says, he's talking about Christ here. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So the inner place behind the curtain is that room in the center of the temple, right? The, the center of the temple, which sometimes is called the Holy of Holies or the Most most holy place, the place only accessible to the high priest, only accessible after ritual cleansing. You've probably heard the stories that they would literally tie a rope around the high priest, so if he's not really fully cleansed and he goes into this place and the presence of God strikes him dead, the other priest can just kind of drag him out of there, right? They don't have to go in after him. But he says, look at this, we have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
And, and what's interesting here to me is in Zechariah, there is so much emphasis, so much focus from the Lord on this temple being rebuilt. From it going from a pile of rocks to once again being a functioning place of worship. And then the writer of Hebrews says, there is one who's coming after the order of Melchizedek, and it is Christ, and he is the one who is entering into the place that only the true high priest can go. Let's read on in, verse, or in chapter 7 of Hebrews. He talks about this for a long time, by the way. If you go into Hebrews, he spends a lot of time on this idea. He says in chapter 7, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So he begins by differentiating between two different priesthoods. One is a priesthood based on the law of God that God gave to Moses, the Levitical priesthood. But then he says there's this other priesthood, and it's this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And he says, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, why would we need this other order of priesthood? And, and so it's sort of a rhetorical question because he's ultimately saying perfection wasn't attainable under the, under the law of Moses. He goes on, he says, verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, not to the tribe of Levi, from which no one has ever served at the altar, meaning no other priests have ever come from this tribe. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from the tribe of Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, look at this, not on the basis of a legal requirement, meaning he's a priest not because the law says he's a priest or because his lineage says he's a priest. He's become a priest by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, and here he quotes the psalm, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former uh, commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So what he's doing here is he's wrestling with the fact that the law that was given to Moses, which was so critical and so important, is fulfilled in Christ. And so if, if I've grown up as a, as a Hebrew and, and this, this law of Moses has been made so clear to me and has seemed so important to me, it's so difficult now for me to treat it as something that has been fulfilled and, and that there now is this new law to be found in Christ. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, that's exactly what's happening. And this new high priest is not like one of the old high priests, right? He, he, he's not a high priest because the law says he is or because he comes from a specific tribe. Instead, he's a different kind of high priest. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews says, you basically have the Levitical priesthood, um, but then you have this other priesthood ordained by God, and, and, and it was, it's different. And he says there's, in this separate order, 
not established by the law, that's a part of another tribe. He says, in it, like, when we get to Christ, the thing that makes it efficacious is the fact that it is based on his indestructible life. It's not based on law. It's not based on lineage. It's based on his resurrection, is what he's saying. It's based on the fact that he died and then came back from the dead. So he says it shouldn't be surprising when one after the order of Melchizedek is the priest and and king, right? Like, he's no longer bound to the old law, and he says, through Christ, a way better hope has now been given to us. Better than the old law, because the old law couldn't perfect anybody or anything. Everybody still had to come every year at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right? And, and have their sins cleansed. And then we would just have to do it over and over again. He says, but now we have this priest king who, when he atones for your sins, it's done. It's fulfilled. It's perfect. You don't have to get a do-over. You don't have to keep it, on, keep it going from year to year. It's a better hope. God told Zechariah to make a crown of silver and gold and to put it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. But Joshua was only a symbol. He was only a forerunner. He was only a foreshadowing of what was to come. Why? Well, what made Joshua a priest? What made Joshua a high priest? He was a priest because the law said he was a priest. He was a priest because of his lineage. He wasn't a priest because of his indestructible life. He was a priest after the order of Levi, but Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which makes him a king as well. And the beauty of all of this is that it is only through Jesus, it is only through him that we have any hope of drawing near to the throne of God. We do not have, by nature, indestructible lives, right? We are flawed and fallen and sinful and people who have great need, and yet a king arrives seemingly out of nowhere, and he breaks bread and he pours wine and he gives glory to God, and through this priest king, we find salvation, Because he takes his righteousness, and through his sacrifice, he freely gives it to us. The Lord is our righteousness. I have no righteousness of my own, Scripture says. You have no righteousness of your own. Instead, we need righteousness that is external to us. We need righteousness to be given to us if we're in any way going to be reconciled to God. And and what the scripture teaches is that Jesus is the one who lays this righteousness on us. He, He takes his indestructible life and he lays it on top of our destructible life. And the crazy thing is, is it's not a facade. It's not like a costume that I wear. It actually becomes my reality. That I become the thing I am not because of what Christ has done through his resurrection through his indestructible life. It becomes my reality and my future. It becomes your reality and your future through faith in Christ. Let me leave us this morning with Paul's words. I'm going to read this to us. It's not going to be on the screen. Paul's words in Ephesians 2. 
because I think he does an incredible job of getting at what we're talking about here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, all of us, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is what God has done for us through Christ. In the same way that when Abram went into battle, God fought for him. God secured the victory for him. He has secured the victory for us as well through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. It is through Christ, our king, our high priest, who is our righteousness. It is through him that we also can enter into the holy places. It is through him that we can be with the Lord forever. And can dine with him at his table as beloved children. And that is worthy of not just our thanks and not just our songs and not just our statements of praise. But it's truly worthy of us saying, Lord, you have all of me. I am yours. Let us go to him in prayer this morning. Father, as always, we thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray, God, as we explore all these different areas of the Scripture and the nature of Christ as both our King and our High Priest, the one who mediates on our behalf, the one who goes before you on our behalf, I pray, Lord, that you would truly illumine our minds and our hearts to this reality in a way that results in life change that we would no longer be the kinds of people that Paul was describing, people who were dead in our trespasses and sins, or people who were just slaves to our flesh or slaves to the whims of our bodies, but rather that we would be people who have received grace and who have been made new, who've truly been born again. Father, help us to examine our hearts this morning. And God, reveal to us the areas of our life that we have not returned to you. Just like you called the people of Israel to return to you and you would return to them, God, show us the places in our hearts that we're trying to keep for ourselves. And Lord, teach us how to be open-handed with those things. Teach us how to trust you. And I pray that in that we find life unlike anything we've ever experienced before. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning? Mm -hmm.